Thank you, Scott. Scott, uh, Scott wears a lot, of, a lot of different hats around, uh, around Four Oaks, and one of them is, uh, is to consistently press forward our vision for the nations, for, for missions, and so I'm, I'm really appreciative. I'm excited. I think, I think you and I can scheme. We're going we're gonna to be scheming some things over the coming years. Uh, we want to we multiply and send, so I'll continue to say it. Uh, if you have a heart, if you're praying for, if you long to be catapulted out of here somewhere, uh, because the gospel is truth and life and light, then uh, we would love to pray with you and help, help send you out. Acts chapter 13 is where you could turn in your Bibles, please. We have been walking through the book of Acts since the beginning of September. Uh, it's, it's our practice, uh, normatively anyway, as much as we possibly can, to take books of the Bible and preach through them consecutively. We feel like that's uh, one of the best ways to, to get all that God has for us. Um, I want to mention, many of you probably got when you came in, we have a, a study booklet that we created with the series as well that would be an aid to you. Now, there's no possible way that we can, we can slow down as much as the, the Word of God has to offer us. It might take us five years to get through. And so uh, this is a little bit of an aid to help you with that. And I think we had these out there, but we ran out um, again. So uh, you'll have to come back next week. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Now, actually, you know what? I don't, I don't need this one, and so I guess I just realized I'm hoarding one. Uh, does anyone need a book like this? I didn't get one when they came in. And we could, like, we could just throw this. How awkward is that? <laughs> this turned into game show host real fast. All right. Never mind then. Uh, this will be right there. And there's, there's one if someone wants it when they get done. If you want to get it online as well, if you've been on the, uh, the thing called the internet uh, before, you could go check it out, uh, fouroakschurch.com. And I think on the blog there, they posted the PDFs of the booklet and you can uh, you could get it from that as well. Let me give you an idea of what we're going to do. We're going to read a big chunk of text over the next uh, few minutes together. We're going to read a big chunk of text together uh, because this this section of, of Acts 13 and 14 creates sort of a, a contained unit. From the beginning of Acts 13, which we saw last week, the Holy Spirit stirring the church in Antioch to send off Barnabas and Saul. That's the beginning of what becomes known as the first missionary journey. And then all of 13 and 14 is Luke's attempt to capture in little windows what took place in the entirety of that journey. So if somebody, if you wanted to, to look and say, how do I know what Paul did on his first journey? You look at Acts 13 and 14, and in totality, they start in Antioch, and at the end of Acts 14, they end up back in Antioch. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of key sections to get a feel for this journey. We want to give as much of an overview as we possibly can to get an idea what Paul was doing, what was he up to, leaving Antioch, leaving this place where he had influence and I'm sure was well-loved. What was he doing? So I'm going to start in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. And I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. It's a big chunk, but in this chunk of text, uh, Paul preaches a sermon. And so hopefully it should be easy to follow. I'd love for you to read with me. Uh, take a Bible if you need one. There should be a black Bible in front of you. If you, if you need that, this is a, this is a steel-free zone uh, for the next... 45 minutes. <laughs> Qualifiers. I absolve you of all guilt of stealing in the next 45 minutes. If you want a Bible, please take one. We'd love for you to have it. Read with me. It's what Luke records in Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law, 
and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that phrase. He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from, ever, <coughs> sorry, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them in the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city who stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we have become far too familiar with the things of God. We have lost our astonishment in large part We come here very dulled and distracted. You have promised life. You've promised the forgiveness of sins. You've said that we could be like Jesus who was raised from the dead. And oftentimes these promises fail to astonish and excite and move us. And for this, God, we repent we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come? Give words of life to us today. Help us to come underneath the Word of God and to to listen with ears that are attentive and eager. Help us to listen with softened hearts, with a desire to, to walk after Jesus, to be amazed that you would have mercy, that you would fulfill promises to wandering, faithless, unworthy people like us. I pray You'd give us the humility that it takes to obey You, to listen to You, to give You rightful place in our lives. We ask that You would protect us now over the next number of moments together. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. Keep us from falsehood. And we pray that in all things You'd make much of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. I'm going to just give you a couple little windows into this first missionary journey. So if you imagine the first missionary journey, which it actually took almost three years. Most people say the beginning, the spring of 46 AD, is, the, is when Saul and Barnabas are sort of called out by the Holy Spirit. So to put this in context, uh, this is probably at least 15 years uh, past Jesus resurrecting and ascending. It's at least 10 years past the conversion of Saul. At this point, he is a seasoned, mature, fruitful teacher of the gospel. And when he is sent out for the next two and a half to three years, we see him on mission journeying around to bring the gospel to places where Jesus has not been named. So Luke, in his attempt to give us this window, basically writes two chapters. This isn't all the interactions that took place. This is not all the work that was done. But he gives us this two-chapter window into what is called First Missionary Journey. And we're just going to take a few of the sections of that. If you saw it like as a movie, you know, like these inventions um, of the DVD when you can like go and pick the chapter that you want. It's just like, oh, when was that? Oh, yeah, this is the part when Yoda fights. Yeah, let's do that, right? Like you can just, you can dive in. We're going to dive into a couple key Yoda fighting moments and, and pick out what's the nature of this mission. What is... What is Paul up to? What has he been called to do? 
the first thing that I want to note before we dive into his, his time in, in Antioch, and we'll mention how that's confusing in a moment, is they, then they leave Antioch and then they, yes, that's the answer to that. The first thing that I want to mention to you, and, and something that I think is lost on us, we read the Bible oftentimes in 2D, to be honest. We, everything is sort of glossed over. It's very similar. It's the same. The names of the places don't make sense. Um, when you were reading, none of you, I'm sure, are, are Near Eastern scholars or Middle Eastern scholars. So when I said they went from Perga to Paphos, you're just thinking like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. What you, boy, that road, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, I wonder if they went to that coffee shop on the side of Paphos Way. You know what I mean? Like none of, oh, we, it's just all the same to us. But I want to mention something, that this point in life, for Paul to go, the fact that it's called a missionary journey should astound us. Paul is an amazingly effective, seasoned teacher of the gospel. He's loved, I'm sure, in Antioch. When the Holy Spirit says go, he sets aside all of the trappings of a comfortable life for him to go on a journey that is not easy. He could have set himself up in Antioch and said like, hey, why don't you guys just bring in a tent with a smoke machine and we'll go around town and charge money. I'm just going to have a speaking tour. Call Zondervan, write a few books. First one could be called, like, I Knew a Man, Tales of the Third Heaven or something, right? He could, he could do a lot of things. He could have claimed for himself a place of status. The call on his life meant that he was going to journey, and a journey in this time meant something very different than it means for us. I was ashamed, actually, at some point. I, one of the things you do when you start diving into these kinds of things, it's in the booklet, but you look at maps and you think, where was he going and how far was this? And what kind of boats did they have to get from one place to the other? There's one of the maps. That's the whole journey. Antioch 13 and 14 is basically this map. It starts in Antioch on the right, Cyprus, and then that area where it says Galatia, Mycia, uh, Cappadocia, that, that's ter- modern-day Turkey. When you begin to look at this, I begin to be ashamed sort of at the, how much I take for granted how easy travel is in our day. Anybody? Anybody have that same sort of thing? I get cranky when I travel. Travel to me is just like, it's like a burden. I remember specifically when I was studying and looking, looking at this, this path, and you know, for the most part, what they did was they walked. There's a huge majority of the time where Paul is probably in terrible sandals. Like he didn't even, he didn't even have Dr. Scholl's or anything. Like he just, terrible sandals walking across this desert and land for miles and miles and miles. When you see a missionary journey that covers hundreds of miles, they're not just, they're not, no one had a caddy, right? He's not laid back. He's not, uh, he's not driving a, a fixed, he didn't even have a fixed gear bicycle. Like none of these things, right? And I began to be ashamed because I, I whine when I travel. I thought back, I had to drive one time uh, 14 hours. That's a long drive, right? 14 hours, I was by myself. And I was in my 1990 Toyota Tercel. That was my first car. You could see through to the ground, through a rough spot in the back seat. And uh, it, was an, it was a manual shift, right? And so I remember getting done with this, this, uh, this trip. Now keep in mind, I had just, I had just driven 1,000 miles, right? I went 1,000 miles in one day. And what was I doing? I was just whiny. I got home. You know what my biggest complaint was? I did, well, that too. No, I didn't have, I didn't have cruise. I was just indignant. Like, Mom and Dad, I need a new car. Like, I don't even have cruise, and I don't even know, how am I supposed to travel across the country? No cruise. You know what I was really saying, right? 
What I was really saying was is that for a thousand miles, I whipped along at 75 miles an hour, being powered by a magical engine that takes liquid and turns it into wheels turning, right? Spontaneously from science nerds. I don't know how they do it. And I sit comfortably on a cushioned seat with springs, with access to all the music that I want, climate controlled. And I was angry because you know what my travel consisted of? I had to give light pressure with my right foot on a, like, I mean, seriously, who can live with this, right? I had to apply pressure lightly the whole time. I have a friend who travels a lot for business, and one time, I I bring it up with him all the time, it was one of the most defining moments in our relationship when I just, I was just in, in wonder at him. For 30 minutes, he just complained about air travel. He was longing to get, like, private jet status or something, He just complained, complained, complained. Oh, travel's the worst. You have to show up like an hour early. It's a shame to be an hour early to fly 600 miles an hour right through the air. This is the world that we live in. Nothing's fast enough. Some of you today are going to complain. You're going to complain that your Facebook wall slowly loaded, right? My friend in India can't give me her pictures in a second. You're angry. You know that when the Holy Spirit calls Paul on this journey, this is like a journey. This is a real live journey. Walking, it's costly. They're in great peril. In fact, one of the things that is interesting about this text, when it says the beginning of Acts 13, right away, Acts 13, 13, right away we find out this little note. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John Mark is a guy who we found out last chapter was with them to assist this missionary journey. And there came a point sometime, remember on the map when it's like they leave on the boat and they show up on this other shore, they came at a a certain point where there was an an argument, a disagreement. Now Luke is a mature man and he gives, he's less less days of our lives than, than some of us would be. He doesn't insert the drama right here, but later we find out that John Mark's desertion was a big deal to Paul. Barnabas later wants to include him again, and Paul says, like, uh-uh, uh-uh, not that guy. And people speculate, what was it in verse 13 that made John leave them and return to Jerusalem? Some people speculate that it was a change of power. That's what made it happen. Have you ever been in a job that you loved, and then your supervisor changed? That job changes. It changes, right? And up to this point, you remember what happened in Antioch? Who was the one that went and blessed the grace of God in Antioch? Barnabas. And then he went and he got Saul and he said, why don't you come teach? And when they, when they left to go on the, on the journey and to leave, it said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. You get the impression that Barnabas was kind of leading the expedition, right? And Barnabas is the guy who says, like, Saul's going to come with, and then John Mark, you should come too. And Barnabas is just a great guy, right? He's the son of encouragement. He, just, he probably just, like, checks in on your kids, gives great company Christmas parties, right? Like, he's always thoughtful, great hugger. You know, like, he just, this is the guy probably, you know, maybe. And somewhere along in Cyprus, I don't know what happened, but a man whose name is the son of encouragement begins to take a back seat to Saul, who was passionate enough so that at one point he basically led a murder ring of Christians. The same Paul who stood up publicly and called out this magician guy and said, you are, you are full of all deceit and villainy, that guy, so some people speculate and think like, well, maybe something happened here. And John Mark was like, ah, I like Barnabas and I signed up for that, but 
Now Paul's like saying, let's go over there in the mountains. <laughs> and he just bailed. And I think that second point of where they were going might have been the bigger reason why John left. This area of the world where they begin, when they land, they land in Perga and go to Antioch and Poseidon. This would have been a number of miles, at least 10, 12, 15 miles, right? And this, by all accounts historically, was basically a den of robbers. <laughs> it's like it was the one street, the one area where people said, do not go. Like John Mark might have looked at Paul and just been like, look, my mom taught me well. And she said, don't go on this road from Perga to Antioch. It's a den of robbers. It would have been dangerous. They're not going with military. They're not being escorted. And I think this gives some perspective. The journeys were difficult and hard, so much so that John Mark bailed and said like, I'm out. And that should give us some perspective when we see things like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul begins to mention the kind of pain and the cost it took for him to be a missionary, to make much of Jesus in all the world. This is what he says starting in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. John Mark wants to hang out with this guy, right? He keeps going, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, and this is one of those phrases, in danger from robbers. He goes on to say the word danger four more times, and then 27, just for good measure, in toil and in hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So you read it and you think to yourself, like, yeah, John, Mark, you go home, wimpy. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of mean to call him that, shame on you. But he, uh, can, you, can you see where he's at? Paul turns, he sets his face toward mission, and he says, all right, we got no food. Uh, we're going to be cold and hungry. This is a road notorious for robbers and muggings. Let's go. And John Mark checks out. I think this should astonish us more. We read through these and we just page through. Just made your perfect pour over coffee at home, right? Half and half milk, put it in there. You're just, just going through your text, right? This is, an, this is an account in the tale of hardship. This is... This is Paul setting aside every earthly comfort so that Jesus would be made known. And a guy, a guy kind of made fun of me once because I was a religious person. I was persecuted, right? Like, I think we just ought to let that simmer a minute and just think what God called him to. The other thing that I, I really want to mention, of course, is that this is a section of, of Scripture where Paul's main work in ministry begins to show up. He is sent out to preach. That's what we find out. He's sent out to preach. So in this first window, this first window, they leave, they leave Cyprus and they go to Antioch, Pisidia, where he's going to give a sermon. Now, this is a little bit confusing. They left Antioch. This is how the journey reads. They left Antioch and went to Cyprus. From Cyprus, they went to Antioch. Then they went to Lystra. Then they went back to Antioch. Then they went back to Antioch. I mean, that's, that's exactly how the journey goes. It's a little confusing. The way this works, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. 
is that there was a very influential uh, leader, basically, in the empire who had a ton of land and began to name towns after his father. So the, the historical record shows he named at least 16 different towns Antioch. It would be like if you called your friend and you didn't tell him what city you were in and you just said, yeah, I'm on Washington Street, right? Well, like, which one? Why? Because every town has something in the name of Washington. He's a great leader. I'm on Lincoln Boulevard. Come and get me. Every town has these things. And Antioch became one of those towns in this part of the world. So this is not the place they're sent out. They go to a different place. And note the pattern. He goes on the Sabbath day to the synagogue. In almost every single place that they go, where they can, they go and speak the word of God to the Jewish population first. So it says a very interesting note in verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets after the reading from the Law and the Prophets. And this instructs us on a couple of things. Uh, First, it has been a standard staple of the people of God for thousands of years to open the Word of God together and to hear it read. Do you remember Josiah? The reforms of Josiah in the Old Testament? They had lost the law completely. One of the builders finds it in the walls. He comes out, like, look at this. What's the first thing they do? He institutes public reading of Scripture. The early church did not make up preaching and expounding on the Word of God. It has always been central. They didn't come together in the first few centuries of the church or first few decades and say like, oh, we're hanging out every week. What are we going to do? Margie plays the lute. (laughs) You know, like, let's let John sing. Margie can play the lute. And then... uh, what do you guys think? Oh, well, the Passover just became this other thing. We could do like a love meal, right? They're not searching for things. They're reading the letters aloud and considering the word of God. That's the way that God's people have been forever. They've been a word-shaped people from the beginning. And so it's not too odd for Paul to go and to hear the reading. And then not only was there reading of the word of God, but there was commentary the people who were like the, the, the rabbis, the learned men, those who knew the Old Testament really well, they would be invited to come up and to preach. They would comment on what was just read. This is how Jesus kicked off his ministry. Do you remember this? The beginning of Luke, Jesus basically comes back from the wilderness. He's, anoint, he's basically anointed and helped by the angels. He's been baptized. He goes into the temple. He's invited to pick up the scroll and he reads. He reads. He comments on the law. This is a common, common thing. And so, basically what happens is God opens a door. Do you remember what happened in Cyprus? A governor says, hey, come and teach the word of God to me. And now the leaders in the synagogue, they see Paul come in. They, they read the, the Old Testament law, something from the Mosaic law, five books of Moses, something from the prophets, and they invite Paul to preach. I'm sure he th- thought, how convenient, Right? This is exactly why I came. Imagine that. You know what I also think? I also think they might have known who Paul was. I think Paul, I think Paul, and this is a, this is a very strict theological term, church historian uses it. Paul was uh, a baller. That's what he was. He really was. Like, do you remember what he says in Philippians 4? He's getting challenged on this idea of boasting in the flesh, giving confidence in the flesh. And then he basically just says, it's sort of like what he did in Corinthians 11. He just goes all rap battle on them. He's like, oh, oh, you want to hear? You want to hear, right? And he says, like, if anyone could boast in the flesh, I could more. Why? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
tribe of Benjamin, right? He had as a rabbi and a teacher, Gamaliel, who was renowned in the, in the countryside as one of the best Jewish teachers. And not only that, but you can imagine that within Jewish circles, this Christianity thing had some, had the word had spread. Paul, the murderous man, is, what's he doing now? He's converted. And so when this guy shows up in Antioch, across the way, not in Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and they read the law. I can imagine the leaders say, we want to hear from this man. And so he stands to preach, preach, preach. We're going to see consistently that speaking is a non-negotiable part of the mission of God. Words. Because what we believe and say and hold to is what gives us confidence in the faith. And so he's asked to speak. I, of course, love the fact that he stands up to give a sermon. And I think it's a sermon, not just a reading or a boring lecture. You know why? Because Luke includes an amazing uh, note for us. Look at the end of verse 16. So Paul stood up and what? (laughs) You know what I mean? Motioning with his hand, he said. Every good communicator ever, right? It's like... This is, this is gesticulation 101. He's into it. Paul didn't just walk up somberly. Thank you all for being here, whatever. He's preaching with his hands, calling them to listen to the Psalms that were read because God has been doing a work that you would not believe if you heard it. Listen, men. Listen, he says. This is, people have said that preaching is basically just sort of like personality put on fire. That's kind of the idea. There's fire in Paul. He's motioning with his hands. Now, I have no idea why Luke included this particular note, right? Sometimes the Bible's curious. Things are in there and you just think to yourself like, does it change anything that he motioned with his hand and said, listen? So, so the Bible's weird like that. Like there's a spot in Mark where Mark's writing and he says, he says and, then, and then the young boy lost, lost his cloak and ran off naked. You remember that part? You ever just read the Bible and just think, you are weird. Like, why that note? Why did that note have to make it in? You don't tell us when Jesus is coming back, but this we know, right? Like, we, we know the clothing effects of this guy in this moment, right? And we don't know a lot of details that we'd love to know, but apparently we know that when Paul speaks, he motions with his hand, right? He begins to preach. And what's the nature of his preaching? The nature of his preaching is to start at the Old Testament, start at the beginning, and point to Jesus, He gives them 3D glasses. It's the same thing that Jesus did after resurrection. On the road to Emmaus, he comes alongside the disciples and he says he shows to them, he illumines to them the idea that Jesus has been the promise of the Old Testament from the beginning. So they had been seeing the words before, but they had never seen Jesus in the words before. So he goes back. We see a a masterful sermon about the importance of David. There was lineage at stake. There was kingship at stake. And Paul drives at Jesus Christ through it all. Jesus is the topic of his speech. You get the impression, and this is something I think we ought to strive for, you get the impression that Paul was so saturated with who Jesus was and what he'd done that he could find his way back to Jesus from anywhere. There is a fluency in the gospel that all of us need to long for. Have you ever learned a language and all you know is like a particular situation? You can only navigate one area, one thing, and then someone says something wrong or out of order and all of a sudden you're just lost, like your cover's blown, right? 
Do you know how to get to Jesus if someone comes to you and says, I'm a sinner, what should I do with my sins? Do you know how to get to Jesus if someone comes to you and says, I don't believe truth exists? Do you know how to get to Jesus if someone comes to you and says that I think that, I think Jesus was an okay an example of a man, but I don't know about all that God stuff. Do you know how to get to Jesus when someone is broken and sad and destitute? What does he offer us so we can, we can say to someone, I have good news. Do you know how to get to Jesus with someone who everything in their life has gone right? They think that genes and DNA and winning the lottery is their, that's their goals. That's their goals in life. That's been their lot in life. How do you speak into someone who seems like they have it all, realize that it's all going to go away? Can you get to Jesus? There's a fluency. There's a fluency regarding the person and the promises of Jesus. I think, I think Paul gets that. We begin, we're going to see that all throughout the next coming chapters in Acts. You throw him into any circumstance. Oh, you Athenians who are worshiping unknown gods. And then within a few sentences, where's Paul? Right back at Jesus. Hello, synagogians. Reading of the prophets and the law, right? Let me, give me a few moments and guess where we'll be? Back to Jesus. He's fluent and he can get there. This is, a, this is a practice of taking your own soul there over and over. It's a practice of living in community with other people who need the promises of the gospel at different stages of their life. This is a practice from interacting with people who have doubts and questions and come at these, these things from different perspectives. The point is he gets there. I want to mention one other thing that is significant to me and I think it's worth wrestling over. Uh, we want to be as clear as we can when we can confront and see things in Scripture. And Acts 13.48, uh, specifically for me, is a, has been a, a significant verse. Acts 13.48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There was a point in my, my life where, you know, like young, young and sort of restless and wanting to obey God that I really struggled with okay, how does God's sovereignty work out? And like, what do my decisions matter? And how is this whole thing going to go down? And what does it matter that I preach? And I, I got really mixed up, honestly. There were points I was reading about all kinds of open theism and like, maybe God doesn't know the future. And maybe he's just faster than I am. So he, he can like, I say, I think I might go. And then he just, he just gets there. That's how powerful he is. And I began to wrestle with this idea that through the pages of scripture over and over and over again, there was the mystery of a real call to repent and believe, an actual, real, meaningful call to repent, but then mixed in this mysterious confidence that God is working behind the scenes, that God has from all eternity past set his affection on us. And I began to, I began to honestly have a, an area of my heart opened that had not been opened before. I began to see that my faith was not something that I was mustering up and offering to God so that he could be impressed with. I began to see that all of the, all of the worry that I had, that maybe tomorrow if I sin too much, maybe the next week if my faith wasn't quite there, that every day God was sort of like, that was okay, Lance. Uh, we'll see how we do tomorrow and then uh, offer me some faith and then I'll, I'll see what happens. And in these pages and in these passages, this was a turning point for me. This snuck up on me. I read all the passages that you think about that are supposed to speak to like sovereignty of God and words like predestination and election. And I was studying them and this one snuck up on me. I hadn't seen it. Did you hear what it, what it said? When I read it, I glossed over it at first and I thought, yeah, so they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. 
Then I read it again and I thought, that's not what it says. There's a sense in which the confidence Luke has is that in this crowd, people will respond to the gospel. Why? Because God is at work. His grace went first and the faith was a fruit of his grace. There's an explanatory, a confidence, explanatory power, a confidence that comes through this. And I wrestled with this for a, a long time, but I think it's something that is a blessing to us. It's a grace to us. Your faith is not something that you muster up that's dependent on your ability tomorrow to feel the right things or think the right things or to be good enough and to offer to God a life that maybe he'll accept. Your standing in Jesus is a gift. It's a gift of grace from beginning to end. Faith, this is what I began to see from this particular verse, faith is a fruit of God's work. Faith is a fruit of God's work. It's a gift from Him. And I think it's something worth wrestling with. Let me say two other things in this area because I think it's important. One, I want to maintain completely a mystery over these, these things. There are mysterious areas. Immediately, I could ask 19 qualifying follow-up statements to this verse. Oh, you want to talk, Bible? Okay, let's talk. Like what, where, how, when, who, what again, right? I know there's mystery here, and I think that sometimes in the conversation, it's fine for us to say, I don't know exactly how it works, but what we can never do is say, the Bible doesn't say this, because this is what it says, and it's been saying this all along. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel. He says, this word is for all of those whom the Lord calls to himself. At the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that the Lord added to their number daily. Who added to their number? The Lord did. God God is behind this. Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the earth, God predestined us for adoption as sons. Those words are in the Bible. So there's mystery, and I think we ought to wrestle with them. I don't want want to say that all of the mystery is gone, but I believe that there's blessing here for us. Let me say the second thing. No matter where you're at on these kind of things, and you read this verse and you say, like, that is confusing and I'm not sure what to make of it. Let me promise you this. This verse and this thinking or even these conversations is never a litmus test. It's not a litmus test for do we love you? Are you included? Are you a part of our church? Can you take the Lord's Supper with us in joy? I think there's a temptation in us to say, this was meaningful to me, therefore I'm going to test you. This is a litmus test like, are you legit or not? We want you to enjoy Jesus Christ. We want to have conversations about these things, but I think it's for our blessing. And maybe that doesn't make sense to any of you, which is why we're going to move on to the next chapter. One more little section of, of Acts chapter 14 uh, in this journey. One more, one more section. I'm going to skimp, uh, skip past his time in Iconium. Uh, you can imagine what happens there. He speaks boldly. He, he gets fruit and opposition. Speak boldly, fruit and opposition. This should be our expectation in gospel ministry. Speak boldly, fruit and opposition. They move on and they go to Lystra. There's an amazing section in the middle of Acts 14 where the people of Lystra believe that Paul and Barnabas are some sort of Greek gods, right? Zeus and Hermes, right? And then I want to note the opposition that takes place, how staunch this got in verse 19 of Acts 14. This is the 19th verse of Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to note just a couple of things about this particular section. One is the perseverance, the persistence of this mission. Paul is stoned, dragged outside the city gates, and left for dead. Some friends go and help him. They probably do that thing where they like, slap his face and pour water on him or something, right? They help him up. And it says that he got up and what? Wised up and went home? Because seriously, you just got stoned back there, right? I don't know if you remember that. The persistence is amazing. It says he got up and he went back into the city. His confidence in the truth of what he had witnessed as well as in the, his confidence in the God who sustains him is unbelievable. And through many tri- tribulations and trials, he is, he is pushing forward the kingdom of God. The last thing that I really want to mention, um, the, question, the question remains sort of like, why did it take so long, this, these trips? It took almost three years. So I told you, part of it is because travel is impossible. It's, it's terrible. Nobody's getting frequent flyer miles back then, right? The other reason is because Paul was not intent to preach the gospel, to hold a tent revival, and then move on. He did not want to set up shop and tell, have people say like, oh, he's a good, he has great rhetoric. What an orator. That really was impactful. And then he didn't just ship out of town. He wanted to make disciples. In the end, the missionary journeys, what we describe as a missionary journey, is a church planting journey. And the reason we know that is because he stayed long enough to strengthen the disciples, and he stayed long enough to appoint elders. There was order that he gave. He was not interested in making a splash and giving them a little bit of the diverse religions of Jerusalem and the Outer Lands, he was interested in planting churches. That's why he says in 1423, when they had appointed elders, they committed committed them to the Lord and they left. When did they leave? When were they comfortable? Paul, when is it okay for you to move on? He didn't have a boss telling him. When was it okay? When there was a church with leadership in place. It's the same thing he says to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Order. I think it's a fancy way to say he, he made a church. They knew who they were and what they were doing and what the mission was. He says, Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. These elders, we know from the rest of Scripture, would have had to have been tested, seasoned, apt to teach, fruitful. He, didn't, he wasn't hasty in the laying on of hands of these men. And so it took a while because Paul wanted to plant churches. That's what it looked like for a place to be reached, where the gospel witness would not just fritter away, where people wouldn't say to themselves, yeah, I remember that fad. I remember a phase back then. I was interested in the things of God when that powerful man, Paul, used to spoke, spoke, used to spake it, spaketh. And uh, those tent revivals were great. Nobody could shred like his band, right? The church is in place to maintain and guard and trust and lead and feed and direct the church. He wanted to plant churches. 
I thought about ways to apply this, and I just thought, as I'm reading through this, that I think that if I can, I want to look like Paul. We want to look like Paul as a church. We want to be about mission that plants churches and keeps things in place. And sort of as a fun note, um, I began to think, I don't know what any of these cities looked like, and I don't even know what these people looked like. There's one little... uh, there's one little work. It's an apocryphal work. It's not scripture. It was uh, written by uh, a historian, probably based on oral tradition in the end of the second century, probably like the next generation after uh, the first generation of the church. And there's actually an account, a historical account of Paul and all of his journeys around the world. And uh, this is what the account says. It's an interesting one. Here, Paul is described as traveling to Iconium, so Acts 13.51, proclaiming, and then this is the quote from this work, It's called Paul and Thecla. The word of God about abstinence and the resurrection. So this is how a generation later the historian remembered what Paul was up to. He was an abstinence preacher. Oh yeah, and the resurrection. It says, Paul's given a full physical description that may reflect oral tradition. In the Syriac text, this is a quote from it, he was a man of middling size, which probably means shorter on that end. His hair was scanty is a great way to just say bald, right? Uh, I picture him as exactly in that awkward spot where the guy really should shave it all the way, but he's holding on, you know? And I know that because I lived that. So the, uh, his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, which is quite an amazingly, this is a, this is a detailed description of a man who you're writing about the next generation. And his knees were projecting. He had large eyes, and this is my favorite part, and his eyebrows met. So... <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but you've been largely influenced by a unibrow. And then uh, he says, and his nose was somewhat long. And this last phrase, he was full of grace and mercy. At one time he seemed like a man, and at another time he seemed like an angel. So I don't mean that we want to be like Paul with a unibrow, right? I mean, we have better grooming skills than that, right? But I think that we ought to ask these questions for us to be a mission sort of like Paul. I think these are legitimate, and this is what we're learning from these journeys, One, I just mentioned that he's committed to church planting. Are we going to be willing to, whenever it comes or whenever that time comes, to give resources and time and and costly, costly mission to plant churches? I have no idea what that means for the future of who we are. I told someone earlier this morning, you know what? We might be a church of 100 people or 200 people, or I don't know what we are, but if in in 20 years we've planted 15 churches, then I'm, I'm really excited about that. I want to be like Paul, look like him by planting churches. I wonder if we're willing to be like Paul in the sense that a call to mission is going to mean cost for us. Are we willing? Are we willing to have costly suffering? I think our persecution complex as Christians is, is we have a fairly low tolerance right now. We really do. I know that it hurts. I know that it's sad to be left out of things. I know that you feel maybe at times that like promotions don't happen because of stands in different areas. It's very real. I don't believe we live in a nation that's like, yes, tell us about Jesus. I don't believe that at all. I think that we fight principalities of darkness, of course, all those things. But maybe some of the problem is we're just really surprised by cost. Maybe we're just really surprised by cost. You want us to live how, God? That's kind of uncomfortable. You're asking that we give what and we go where? We talk to who? We speak truth when? Mission like Paul, he, he just it was completely abandoned. I'm not sure we can imitate Paul, who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We can't imitate him at all unless we embrace some sort of cost to the mission. 
The last thing I really want to consider is that have we, have we become fluent in the gospel? Can we get to Jesus? Words matter. They really do. We want to adorn the gospel with a million things. I want to care for the lost because they've been, made, they've been made in the image of God. I want to care for the destitute and the poor. They've been made in the image of God. There's dignity and value. I want to care for widows and orphans. These are good things. Our works, our life needs to be poured out. And those things adorn the gospel. They adorn it. They make it beautiful. They give legs to it. But the gospel is no gospel if it does not contain assertions of truth. Words. It's the things that we say about who Jesus is that matters. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, there's a confession that we must hold to. And Paul made great effort to learn how to speak precisely, winsomely, graciously. But let us never use the word winsome or gracious or loving as an excuse for, for a lack of boldness or just being weak, right? Words matter. If we're going to be like Paul, we need to speak, and sometimes we need to speak boldly, courageously. Precision matters. Who is Jesus? It's not a minor question. It's not an invitation to spiritual exploitation, right? It's not just like, no, we invite them to Jesus, the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. This is the confession. We can't lose it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, your word. We know that you could have left us in a, in a dark world, a silent world, but you did not. You desire to know us. You desire to have intimacy with us. And we are grateful. We're grateful for the ways that you have called us to mission. Thanks for the example in Paul. I pray that you'd send us out. I pray that as we go, we would cling to the, the words you've given us. Help us to be gracious and kind. And God, we pray that you bring fruit.